Let's pray together. Indeed, Lord, we pray that you would come and that you would reign in us. Pray, Lord, that you would rule in our hearts and minds and that you would rule in our actions and words. You are the great and mighty one who has chosen us and made us your, your own people, a royal priesthood, called us to minister, to declare your excellencies. So, Lord, do that. We can't do that unless you rule in us. We can't do that unless you take over. And so, Lord, we do. We say, here we are, Lord. Take over. Have your way in our lives, we pray. Do it even now by your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you're here this morning and you're joining us for the first time, we're in a study through the book of Isaiah. and We're in Isaiah chapter 6. And uh, maybe you're traveling and you didn't have your Bible with you. Um, if you raise your hands, there are a couple of folks who are traveling down the aisles with the Bible that'd be happy to bring you one and to, to loan you one if you have a Bible at home, but not here. If you don't have a Bible, we're happy for you to take that one and to make it your own. Write your name in it, keep it, treasure it as we treasure it, read it on your own, uh, pray through it, and uh, try as God gives you grace to embrace all that it teaches there about him and about his people. Well, before we turn to the sermon this morning, I also want to recognize some special guests with us. That's just LaRonda Graham's back in town. Y'all say, hey, LaRonda. Amen. Amen. LaRonda's away at seminary studying, so we're always glad to see her here. Any other college students or seminary students back with us that would dare acknowledge it publicly? I say that on behalf of my daughters up here who are just like bowing down and uh, see uh, one of the divines back there. Yeah. Yes. Welcome back. Amen. Praise God. Can't see him behind Peterson there. Good to see you. So we're glad that you guys are back and uh, glad that we have this time to worship with you this morning. And uh, Curtis, good to see Curtis this morning too. Hey brother, how are you? Amen. Amen. Y'all, y'all weak with the claps this morning. I just want to, just want to point that out from, amen. From the songs to the visitors, y'all just with the golf clap. Amen. You've seen the news this week, and there's a lot of it. You've seen the pictures and the images coming out of Zimbabwe, a man who's held power there for longer than many of us have been alive. has finally been deposed, and there's great joy in the streets. There's a sense of deliverance that has come. We continue to watch the news and the accounts of things that are happening in our own country, Uh, the allegations of sexual abuse and mistreatment at the hands of powerful men in government, in church, in various places. And we're glad, I hope, at the sense of some burgeoning deliverance, at least in the form of of truth-telling and and coming out and and maybe the culture turning to begin to believe people, women, when they share these things. And maybe you watch news in other places, more local news, things going on in cities and towns, maybe news of floods or fire or things of that sort. Perhaps the news has carried an update of things getting better. We love it when things get better. It's good when things get better. In those little moments of things getting better are glimpses of deliverance, 
of salvation, of rescue. I don't know anybody in trouble who doesn't want rescue, who doesn't want to be saved from the trouble that's coming, delivered from the hardships that are around the corner or right on top of them. It is a part of the human condition to want to be set free from trouble. It's also a part of the human condition to look in the wrong places for deliverers. And so with all of the elation in Zimbabwe right now, as an illustration, uh, with the regime change there, it might be tempting for Zimbabweans to think that the next ruler, the next president, will be their deliverer, will be their answer. Or maybe the case that with lawsuits pending or allegations made that people begin to sort of trust that the, the next deliverer, the next, the next savior, if you will, will be that lawmaker, will be that policymaker who, who passes a law or that judge who declares guilty as a verdict and have our hopes set on being saved by such a ruler. Beloved, it is also true that human beings make lousy saviors. That the salvation that we most want, the salvation that's most lasting, the salvation that really is a deliverance, well, that salvation belongs to God. And that, I want to suggest, is the main point of Isaiah chapter 6. Salvation belongs to God. And, and that implies at least two things. Gen generally speaking, it implies that all then that we need for salvation must come from God. If it belongs to him, it must come from him. And in our text this morning, we see two things that we need in order to be saved that must come from God. Number one, atonement comes from God. We see that in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. And number two, the Savior comes from God. We see that in verses 8 to 13. Salvation belongs to God, which means the atonement we need and the Savior we need must come from God. This is the burden of Isaiah 6. Look with the there, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. And with two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to another saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. 
And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes. Lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is the stump. Salvation belongs to God. Isaiah 6 verse 1 opens with the reference to the year that King Uzziah died. That places us around 739 B.C., before the birth of Christ. Uzziah became king of Judah when he was 16 years old. And he ruled for 50 years. He started off as a good king. The Bible says in 2 Chronicles chapter 26, verse 5, that he followed the Lord wholeheartedly. Which is striking because it's precisely the opposite of Amaziah, his father, who did wickedness in the sight of the Lord. And Uzziah, as he reigned, experienced God's blessing. Judah grew economically. Judah grew militarily. Judah grew strong. The southern kingdom experienced God's hand of blessing. But in the end of his time as king, Uzziah seriously sinned against God. We read this in 2 Chronicles chapter 26, verse 16. But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Here was a man whose success made him so proud. He dared to do in God's presence what God said only priests could do. Uzziah represents so much of the, of the nation of Judah as a whole. God's blessing led him to believe it was all about him. He, he, was, he grew arrogant and, and committed sacrilege. And the, the same thing could be said of all the people of Judah. They grew fat and arrogant in the days of plenty, and they turned away from the Lord. And, and they leave us two lessons here. Number one, often good things make us forgetful of God. And number two, though Uzziah was a good, a good king, atonement with God would not come from him. Israel will not be saved by a human king. And none of our human leaders from pastors to presidents will be the ones who atone for us. Salvation does not come from any man, but from God. 
And so it's striking then that, that Isaiah now has this vision. And he reminds us that it's in the year that King Uzziah died. And this vision takes place essentially in the temple where Uzziah had committed this sacrilege. And the first thing that Isaiah describes for us that he sees in the temple is this vision of the Lord himself. See it there, verse 1. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Everything about this vision speaks to us of God's holiness and God's majesty. We see God upon a throne, high and lifted up. Thrones symbolize royalty and rule, power and control. And in this vision, as in real life, the Lord is exalted and is in control of everything. But then you notice Isaiah goes on in verse 2. He tells us about the, the seraphim mentioned only here in the Bible. Each had six wings and with two they covered their eyes and with two they covered their feet and with two they flew. The seraphim seemed to be speaking of God's holiness both non-verbally and verbally. Even the angels find God too holy to look upon. And even the angels find that the ground in God's presence is too holy to stand upon. They cover their eyes. They cover their feet. And what they declare non-verbally, they also declare verbally as they call out to each other in call and response, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. Or you have a translation that says the, the Lord of hosts, holy, holy, holy. And before God, for all of time, the angels keep declaring his holiness. And it's the angels who tell us what men habitually cannot see. That the whole earth is full of his glory. You see the Lord's train there, which, which fills the temple. It's a striking image. We, we think of trains, most often we think of a bride in her wedding dress. She comes down the aisle in white, symbolizing holiness. And, and behind her is a, is a train to her gown. And, and sometimes the train is, is long enough that the bridesmaids have to attend to her and adjust it so she can walk and move around. Well, God's train to his robe, which symbolizes his majesty as a king, his train is so long, it, it fills the whole temple. And, and though it's long and though it's heavy, it's not too heavy. His glory is not too heavy for him to carry. And no attendance to his glory. He bears it by himself. And it fills the temple. That very place where holy worship is meant to be offered to God. We see there unfolded in fabric the majesty and the beauty and the splendor of God. And Isaiah sees this and he's taken in with the, the fullness of God's glory and his holiness. The angels announce it, but there's a problem. A holy God cannot be seen by sinful men, notice, even in a vision, without sinful men feeling themselves dying in his presence. Now, seeing the holiness of God as fallen creatures produces trauma in us. That's, that's Isaiah's response in verse 5. Notice what he says there. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, 
the Lord of hosts. It's striking. We're used to seeing the Old Testament prophets pronouncing a woe on the people, on the nations. We don't often see them pronounce a woe on themselves. That, that word which announces judgment. He, he, he says, listen, I'm, I'm judged myself. He recognizes in an instant that he's not different from the people. Oh, he's a prophet, but he needs an atonement too. He says, I am undone and, and I dwell among people with unclean lips. I'm a sinner with unclean lips, just like the rest of the people with unclean lips. There's something about the purity and the radiance and the holiness of God that exposes the dirtiness of prophet and people. And having now seen the King, the Lord of hosts, I know Isaiah knows that the sight of such holiness means that he's undone. He's disintegrating. He is lost in the presence of God. The trauma of God's holiness is so terrible, the prophet fears he just might die. You might be here and you're new to the Bible and you might think that's an overreaction. Or maybe that's some kind of bizarre reaction that, that Isaiah might just be a drama queen after all. You know, he's just given to making much of stuff. Maybe that's just for effect. After all, this is a vision, and in visions, there's so much symbolism that maybe this is just a symbolic reaction. You might think that, beloved, but this traumatic fear of death in the presence of God's holiness is how all the people of the Bible respond when they see God in His holiness and in the light of His holiness. They feel the corruption of their sin. If you want to, let's take a little tour of the Bible. Follow along with me. You can write these references down or you can turn there with me. But this is precisely what we see when God gives his people his law. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 24 to 26. There Moses records for us that period where God has given his law to Israel and, and Israel has seen God on the mountain where Moses received the law. And Deuteronomy 5, verse 24, these are the words that are recorded for us there. Moses speaking to Israel said, And you said, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and greatness, and we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen God speak with man, and man still live. They are marveling at that. And we know that because of what else is said. Now therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore, we shall die. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of fire as we have and has still lived? whole nation, encountering God in his holiness, just hearing his voice fears for its life. Or consider Moses himself. If you look with me at Exodus chapter 33, verses 18 to 23, record that section many of you will know well where Moses is begging to see the glory of the Lord. And you'll recall that the Lord tells him these words in Exodus 33, beginning in verse 19. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, verse 20, 
you cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. To appear before the grace of God, or the face of God, in all of its unmediated holiness, would mean the annihilation the destruction, the death of sinful creatures. Didn't just happen to Moses, but consider Gideon. Judges chapter 6, verses 21 to 23. The angel of the Lord has come to Gideon and he is calling Gideon basically to become a judge, a, a leader in Israel. And, and Gideon is having this conversation with the angel of the Lord. He at first doesn't know that it's the angel of the Lord. And, and he's talking about all of his, his weaknesses and insecurities. And, and we come to this part in verse 21 of Judges 6. And this is what we read. The angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. Uh, Gideon had decided to, to, to make an offering to God after hearing this calling to serve God. So the angel had touched that offering and notice fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes and the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Verse 22, then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. He's, he's saying that for fear of his life. Verse 23, the Lord said to him, peace be to you. Do not fear, you shall not die. It's what should have happened, except for God's mercy. While we're in Judges, look over to Judges chapter 13. There we see a man named Manoah and his wife. The angel of the Lord has appeared to Manoah's wife and told her that she's going to have a special son. She tells her husband, and the husband like, oh, okay, cool. They don't know really what's up, who this stranger is. They don't know it's the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord comes to the lady again and tells her the same thing. This time she runs to get her husband, Manoah, and they come back out in the field to meet him. And he explains to husband and wife um, what, the, what the Lord's plans are. And so they decide in verse 19 to make an offering of a young goat and a grain offering. And they put it on the rock to the Lord who had told him that his name was uh, Wonderful, the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife, verse 19, were watching. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and to his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, we shall surely die for we have seen God. His wife said to him, praise God for wives. If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands or shown us all these things or now announced to us such things as these. We can add to that list Daniel in Daniel chapter 10. We can add to that Peter after the Lord caught those fish miraculously and, and Peter fell down at his feet and said, depart from me for I'm unclean. 
We can add to that the Apostle John, who seeing not God, but an angel, fell down at the angel's feet for the, for the glory and the magnificence of those angelic beings. Oh, beloved, whenever sinful men are in the presence of a holy God, by the sheer magnitude of that holiness, men are made to fear for their lives, for they will be consumed apart from grace. There's a lesson in this. Man cannot save himself. Kings won't save us, and we won't save ourselves. We will never be good enough or holy enough to match God's holiness. And the moment we enter the presence of God, hoping to be holy through our own goodness and works, we will die in the radiance and splendor of his face. This is why man is lost This is why Isaiah cries out, woe is me, for I am lost. He knows that unless his sins can be covered, unless there's an atonement that's made, he, like all other people, will be consumed in the holiness of God. And this is why every sinner needs to recognize, everyone who does not yet believe in Christ, that they too are lost in the presence of this holy God, unless they have atonement. The only way to see God without being killed by God is to, is to have a, a sacrifice made for us. That's why in most of those other scenes that we read from Judges, for example, we see there an offering being made to God, a grain offering, a, a sin offering. And, and that's what we see in Isaiah chapter 6 when we talk about the, the angel, the seraphim in verse 6, taking the coal off the altar and bringing it and touching it to Isaiah's lips and announcing atonement has been made for you. Atonement is an offering that covers our sins. And some people define it by simply breaking the word apart. That where atonement is made, we have at-one-ment again with God. It's the kind of sacrifice that makes us at one with a holy God by covering our sins and, and bringing us near to him. And again, that's what we have here in Isaiah 6 and those beautiful words in verse 7. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. What a wonderful thing. Isaiah confesses his sin in verse 5. The Lord cleanses his sin in verse 7. And we see where atonement comes from. It comes from God. It is God who cleanses us and covers us. It is God who makes us at one with himself again. And we need this atonement, every one of us. We must receive it in the proper way. It's not by getting ourselves right that we find atonement with God. It's by confessing our sins and crying out to God. Notice as one commentator puts it, it is only after he has confessed his sins that the seraphs come with God's word of forgiveness. This is always the order of scripture. First comes confession. Then comes atonement. Atonement coming from God and not ourselves. That same writer says this, the coal is applied to Isaiah's lips, the very part he found sinful and unworthy God takes the initiative to find a way to forgive our sins. That's such good news. The very part that makes us unclean before God, whether it's our lips 
or our heart. Whatever the particular sin, whatever the besetting struggle, whatever the the active rebellion, God makes atonement for that very thing. That it might be cleansed. That its sin might be covered. And we might be at one with him again. Salvation belongs to God because atonement comes from God. But now there's another thing here. We need this atonement and we also need a savior. And that that savior too comes from God. God never saves a person to leave them on the sidelines watching the game. God saves us because in the words of Titus 2 verse 14, he wanted a people uh, for his own possession who were zealous for good works. God saves us according to Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 because he has prepared beforehand good works for us to walk in. If God has saved you, he also has an assignment for you. And that's what we see with Isaiah beginning in verse 8. Isaiah, or the Lord asked a question there in in Isaiah 6 verse 8. Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And we see Isaiah's response. It's it's really amazing that, that God, who is holy and infinite, would be pleased to speak to humanity at all. But then twice as amazing that he would speak to us through another human instrument. It pleases God to appoint prophets and and preachers that that, that speak to his people and, and to ask this question, who will go for us? And Isaiah volunteers. He says, here am I, send me. And that's precisely the right response, beloved, for for anyone who has God atoned for their sins and have come to recognize something of God's matchless holiness. That's the right response. Send me if you take God's holiness seriously. Send me is the cry of every saint who recognizes the the beauty and the majesty of God. And and send me is the cry of every saint who loves people and want other people to come to know this God. Send me is the response of, of everyone who knows that their lives have been purchased by God and they are now servants of God. And it's a great privilege to be a servant of the living God. Send me is the response, is the cry, is the voice of faith that believes God's commands are good and ought to be obeyed even at great cost. See, you see Isaiah here going from being woe is me to having his lips cleansed to now saying send me. I'll go for you God. That's God's that's the, the attitude of all true followers of God. They say, as one theologian put it, command what you wish and grant what you command. Uh, We all have a version, if we are Christ's people, of saying, here I am, send me. Is that your anthem, beloved? Is that your song? Here I am, send me. There's something wonderful about Isaiah's response here. It reminds me of little kids on the playground. Have you ever watched little kids on the playground? I assume you've been a little kid on the playground. And maybe at recess, it was time to play kickball. And the captains were chosen. And you had two captains, and it's time to pick teams. They sort of stand like all of a sudden they're philosophers looking over the, the rest of the crowd of kids, like, hmm, let me see now. And, and, and what do all the little kids do? Ooh, ooh, dude, pick me, pick me, dude, pick me. 
right? There's this excitement. I, I want to be chosen. I, I, I want to be in a number. I want to join a team and, and play my part. And, and you know, there's, there's some complexity to this story, too, because on the playground, sometimes not all the captains are created equal. Sometimes you got a captain who's really good. Sometimes you got a captain like, oh, I'm sure I want to play for that dude, right? And so when it's time for him to pick, you start kicking rocks and you get quiet. You try to be invisible, right? You know, act like you don't want to play. And then when the other guy be, oh, choose me, choose me. Isaiah strikes me as a man who knows that God's team is the winning team. That God is the best captain. He strikes me as a man who has come to understand, having seen God high and lifted up, his train filling the temple, the angels crying, holy, holy, holy. He strikes me as a man who's figured out in that encounter that he wants to be on God's side. And sometimes as Christians... You can test this as to whether or not this is true in your life. We sometimes, when it comes to God's calling, we look a little bit like the kids kicking rocks, waiting for the next team, an easier assignment, a captain we like better. That's not how Isaiah responds, and that's not how God would have us respond. God would have us see him in his glory and his beauty and his power and majesty and go, ooh, 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 choose me, send me. I want to do your work, Lord. I want to do your bidding, whatever it costs. Is that you, Christian? Do we believe God's side is the winning side? And do we believe it's a great privilege and honor to be chosen by him to do his work? I hope we do. And I hope we do that even if what God assigns to us is hard. Notice what we see in verses 9 and 10. Isaiah says, here I am, send me. And God speaks again in verse 9, says, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. That's a striking couple of verses, isn't it? It's, it's not what you would commonly expect, I don't think. I remember the first time I read this scripture as a, as a new Christian. Not just the first time, the first few times. I, I read it a few times before I, I figured out that I wasn't reading it wrong. You, you ever read a, a verse and you go, this must be a misprint. Let me give me another translation, see how they put it. And I'm reading this bit and it sounds to me like God is sending the prophet to preach he loves his people, so I assume he, he wants their repentance. But he can read verse 9 and verse 10, and it's clear that their hearts are dull, their ears are heavy, their eyes are blind, because God wants it that way. He even says, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and believe. And you're thinking, God, I thought that's what you wanted. I, I thought that's why the preacher goes and, and why you send the prophet. But keep in mind, this text is coming at a point where God has decided he's going to judge Israel for their sins. Their hearts have been dulled, their ears have been stopped, their eyes have been blind a long time before this point. 
And now God is affirming them in their blindness, in their hardness, in their, in their, in their deafness. God is, in that sense, sending the judgment, the first wave of the judgment, in this hardening of their hearts. It'd be some years later before I would be able to accept a passage like this. I would be kicking and screaming against it, trying to make it fit my conception of a God who was only love and always only wanted forgiveness. And this seems really mean. But God is holy, beloved. And he's just. And he's righteous. And he will not always put up with sinners in their sin. I had to come to accept three or four things about a text like this. Number one, God's sovereignty reaches even the human heart. He's not just a ruler of events and things out there, but he's rulers even over what goes on in our heart. He grants mercy to whom he wills and and whom he wills, he hardens. He's warned Israel repeatedly and they've not repented. And so God is not obligated to continue to be patient. He has a limit When when his patience is up, then comes his judgment. And that judgment includes, like Pharaoh, a hardening of heart with sin. Again, beloved, this means we can't save ourselves. Salvation belongs to God. But secondly, God is not fooled by human excuses either. We've gone through five chapters where God has been sending a prophet to Israel saying, repent and turn back to me. And, and, and they are heavy hearted and dull of hearing and blinded in eyes. And, and sometimes, beloved, sinners think they fool God. We may fool ourselves, but we don't fool God. And God is not mocked. People hear the gospel and they hide behind things that they don't understand. Because they don't want to understand them. People ask questions like, what about those who have never heard? As a way of avoiding the fact that they are now hearing. When you point out Isaiah 6... And God's plan to send people to the nations. Well, then they got other objections. I don't, I don't want to go to Africa. I don't, I don't want to go to God. No, nah, I ain't got all that mission stuff. Proving they weren't really concerned about people who had never heard. Their, their, their objection was disingenuous. And when some people hear about the love of God for them, they share their hearts are dull by going on to hide behind suffering and evil and other philosophical objections. They don't really have these questions. These are simply the kinds of things people say when they see but have no sight. Hear but don't want to understand. When their hearts are heavy and dull. That was Israel's problem. And that's the problem of many people today. Matthew Henry says this, many hear the sound of God's word but do not feel the power of it. And that's because they refuse the power of it. Even this morning, some are being appealed to by God or being drawn by God. Maybe it's the vision of his holiness and the awareness of your sin. Or maybe it's the promise of atonement and a sacrifice that comes from God and and that you simply receive by faith. And you feel the Lord pulling on you. Are you refusing that pull? Are you stiffening your neck, straightening your back? Are you straightening your arms? Are you manufacturing excuses and objections and reasons why you shouldn't just yield to God and trust in him? If you are, 
Beloved, let me warn you not to harden your heart. Today is the day of salvation. Believe in God. Trust Him. Receive His word. Seek Him for the salvation that only He can give. Don't see and not recognize. Don't hear and not understand. Don't don't hear the message of God's love and a Savior coming and reject it. That's the worst harm you can do to your soul. Do not be that person. And here's something else these couple of verses teaches us. Number three, that God uses preachers to save people from his judgment, but preachers themselves are not saviors. Isaiah goes with the message, but notice the results are up to God. The results are not accomplished in Isaiah's strength or Isaiah's eloquence. God is telling him, you're going to preach to this people Israel, and I'm going to make their hearts hard, and they are not going to believe. You are simply going to have to preach God's word, but the power to save remains in God's hands. And finally, God measures success differently from men. Isaiah 6 teaches us that the success of of any ministry should not be measured in the responses of the people. A man is not a successful preacher because a lot of people are yelling amen. A man's not a successful preacher because thousands of people get saved. A man's not a successful preacher because somebody invites him to speak at their conference or some such thing and there's an outward response to the preaching of the word. That's not how God defines success. Man may define success that, that way and we may be carried away heaping to ourselves our favorite preachers and teachers because in some measure we find them to be in a human sense successful. Well, if that's what success is, Isaiah is a failure from day one. But Isaiah is no failure. And the people do not repent in masses. And they are not shouting, amen, we agree with you, Isaiah. Uh, Very often they are opposing him and resisting him. So what does God think of Isaiah? God thinks Isaiah is successful. Because Isaiah does the one thing that God requires of anyone who handles his word. God defines success in the words of 1 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2. Any of you who aspire to be preachers or aspire to be elders, any of you who want to minister God's word to children or among women or in whatever context, commit these words to memory. Write them on your heart. Dedicate your ministry to this. This is what Paul says about his own ministry. Isaiah 4, 1 and 2. Paul says, this is how others should regard us. As servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God, meaning God's word in the gospel. Then he says this, verse 2, moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. That's the measure of success in God's eyes. Faithfulness. So Isaiah was a success the moment he accepted this call and agreed to go preach this message to a people whom he knew would not listen to him because God would not grant them that grace to repent and to believe. And every time he preached and every time he warned and every time he called people to believe, every time he was in faithfulness doing what God called him to do, he was being successful in God's sight. The results were not his, the results were God's. 
He couldn't change hearts. Only God could. He was not going to make atonement for them. Only God could make atonement for them. All the results were over to God. But success was in Isaiah's hands if success is measured by faithfulness. You want to please God? Serve him faithfully. Do what he told you to do, when he told you to do it, how he told you to do it with a glad heart. Be faithful and God will be glorified and you will be successful in the only way that matters in God's sight. So Isaiah preaches this message. He goes before the people and he makes Christ known. But he has this question. Notice there at the end of verse 10 or in verse 11. How long, O Lord? That implies his faithfulness. He doesn't push back on the message. He doesn't say, hey, God, why don't you do this differently? He doesn't say, hey, but, you know, that looks kind of mean. He, just, he accepts the call. He accepts the commission. And, and, and when God says, I'm going to make their hearts heavy, Isaiah's only question is, how long, O Lord? And it's a good question. And God responds to him in the words of verses 12 and 13 or 11 to 13. And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tiff remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. Basically, you keep preaching the message I gave you until I have sent everybody in exile in judgment. When the cities are empty and the houses are empty and the trees are cut down, that's how long you preach what I gave you to preach. See, God determines the message. God determines the duration of the ministry and faithfulness just keeps preaching until God does what he's going to do. He sends Israel off into exile just as he promised. The judgment will come. Now, it's interesting in this passage, notice the, the hope in this passage. There's, a, there's a, a remnant. You see it there in verse 11 and 12, or 12, excuse me. Where is that? One tenth. Y'all saw it. I read it. 13. God says there will be a tenth that remain who prove faithful to God. There'll be some small leftovers in the land. They will not bow the knee to idols and and though they are affected by God's judgment, I mean, the whole nation suffers. Israel is gone. There is no country there. Everything is desolate. And they, they, affect, they suffer the effects of God's judgment. Notice, they are nevertheless preserved by God. They are kept by God. They will not be defeated, but ultimately spared. And this is the case with all who put their trust in the Lord. Consider the image that's used here. They'll be like trees cut down to a stump. The tree is gone, but there's left the roots, the roots beneath the ground and a small part of the base of the trunk. That remnant will not be the Savior. They only symbolize the Savior. Look at the last line, verse 13. The holy seed is the stump. The seed, of course, means child or offspring. The word is singular, seed, not seeds, plural. So it refers to one child, one special child who is holy. Not like Israel, not like Judah, not like even like the remnant. The seed, the seed will truly be holy the way God is holy in the vision of verses 1 to 7. And the seed is also a stump. 
This Savior whom God sends will be both what gives life, the holy seed, and what suffers death, what remains after the tree is cut down, the the stump. The Savior, paradoxically, will be what is cut off, but also what is life-giving. Will be what suffers death, but also gives life. Isaiah 6 comes together in the New Testament in John chapter 12. I feel like you can turn there as we, as we conclude. For John is wrestling with the fact that Israel is rejecting Jesus. And he's attempting to explain to the early Christian church in this gospel and, and all of us who read it today why that is the case. In John chapter 12, John records a scene where Jesus has been preaching the fact that he must be lifted up. He must be crucified, buried, and resurrected. Verse 36 picks up the action, and this is what we read in John uh, chapter 12, beginning in verse 36. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. He quotes first from Isaiah 53. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah, now he quotes from Isaiah 6, verse 10. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. John is saying it's because of God's sovereign election and his sovereign mercy that Israel could not believe. They they have not believed and they have rejected the Savior. Verse 41, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Now that's an interesting line. Verse 41 means that the one that Isaiah saw on the throne, whose glory filled the temple, to whom the angels sang, holy, holy, holy was none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Lord high and lifted up. He is the Lord who makes atonement for our sins. He is the stump and the root of Jesse who was to come from the remnant of Israel and bring salvation not just for Israel, but for all the nations and all who would believe in him. Isaiah is looking down the time, the cards of time, over 700 years. And there he sees Jesus the King of kings and Lord of lords, ruling and reigning. John goes on to say in verses 42 and 43, Nevertheless, many of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Though Jesus makes atonement for our sins on the cross, and though on some level they believed, they preferred to identify with men more than with God. Though Jesus' blood shed on the cross atones for our sins, it covers our sin and makes us at one again with God, they would rather be at one with the rulers of the synagogue than with the ruler of heaven and earth. And though through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are reconciled to God and made righteous in God's sight, and God becomes our Father, 
They prefer the applause of men rather than the approval of God. And even though Jesus gives life through his resurrection to everyone who believes in him, eternal life, a life of love and joy, they would have rather the welcoming and the approval at a synagogue service than the welcome and the approval of God in his kingdom. They made a foolish bargain. They feared men more than they feared God. And in fearing men more than they feared God, they proved they didn't really fear God at all. To have a share in God's glory, just consider that for a moment. To have a share in God's glory must be the highest reward possible to human creatures. To be able to see God face to face and live, not trembling for fear of death, but as David says in Psalm 17, 15, seeing him in the resurrection and being satisfied. That must be the sweetest satisfaction ever possible. To see God and in his face, see love for yourself. To look into the eyes of God and to see in his eyes compassion and care and tenderness. To behold the glory of nail-scarred hands and a pierced side and a whipped back and know every blow should have been yours. But he gladly took your place. To see the glory of that must be one of the most liberating things a sinner can ever feel before God. But these men preferred the glory that comes from men rather than glory that comes from God through the only Savior who comes from God who makes the only atonement that covers our sin. If you're here this morning and you're not sure you want to follow Jesus publicly and you're shrinking back for fear of men, don't, don't do it, beloved. Don't do it. Don't let the look of men make you afraid to associate with Jesus. Instead, forget the faces of men and remember the face of Jesus. The one who bled and died and suffered for you, who rose again from the grave to make you at one with God and to cleanse you of all of your sins, all of them particularly, to make you righteous before God and to give you eternal life. Remember his face. Want to identify with his glory. Behold him in his holiness and love him. Believe in him. Forsake men and forsake sin so that you might have a savior. The Lord Jesus Christ. There's no love like his. There's no glory like his. There's no hope of salvation apart from him. But with him, you have life and eternity and the kingdom of heaven full of glory.
If you're here this morning and you've not yet trusted in Jesus, in a moment we're going to sing and I'm going to pray and I'm going to give words of blessing and, and we're going to have a, a little quiet moment to reflect. Use those moments to gain eternity. Use those few moments to cry out like Isaiah, I am lost, I am a sinner who dwells among a bunch of other sinners, and I'm undone apart from you, God. And call upon the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who died for your sins and was raised from the grave, and accept that sacrifice as your sacrifice of atonement, and call upon the Lord to give you faith and repentance to follow him in the obedience that comes from faith and receive eternal life, that life which is truly life. This is God's free offer to you. Don't waste it thinking about men. Don't waste it thinking about being good enough yourself. Don't waste it waiting on another deliverer. Use this time. Believe in Jesus. Follow him in faith, and you will be saved. Let's pray together. Oh God, how I pray that you would give us grace right now to cry out, here am I, Lord, send me. I pray that you would give us grace if we are not yet Christians to cry out, here I am, Lord, accept me. Accept me, not because of what I have done, not because of what rulers promise, accept me because of what Jesus has done. And his death on the cross to atone for our sins and his resurrection from the grave for our justification. Oh Lord, grant grace to someone now, right now, even now, to call upon your name and to be saved just as you promise. Lord, do not, I pray, send dull hearts and blind eyes and stopped ears. You will be glorified if you judge us for your sins, but you will be glorified all the more if you save us and give us hearts of praise. So open eyes that they might see Jesus and unstopped ears that they might hear your word and, and Lord, lift dull hearts that they might be alive to you and grant saving faith to someone even now. And for your people who have already trusted in you and believed in you, Lord, grant us a heart to go for you to go across the street to our neighbors, to, to go across town to others in the city, to go across oceans, O oh Lord, and rivers, to go to the four corners of the globe, to, to make your excellency known, to proclaim your mighty works, to proclaim the beauty of your name and the glory of your face and the wonder of your salvation. O oh Lord, send us from this place. Send us, O oh Lord, across the street and across the globe for the glory of your name. And let us be successful in your sight, worrying only about being faithful, not about the opinions of men. Help us, O oh Lord, we pray. We can't do this unless you help us. We can't go unless you send us. 
We can't see the fruit of conversion unless you say, salvation belongs to you. Oh Lord, use us to give it to others, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.